I didn't start a business because I was excited about managing people. I was not dreaming of hiring a team while I was writing blog posts in the stolen moments between nursing my baby and nap times. Truth be told, I'm still not that excited about managing people, although I do dream about hiring more often. Yet here I am managing five people between two companies. If I had to pin down the biggest lessons that I've learned about building a business, I think they might all have to do with the relationships I have with my team members, which is not to say that I have it all figured out, but boy, oh boy, do I approach things differently than I used to. I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that explores how small business owners are building stronger businesses without the shoulds and supposed tos. This week, we're examining how we nurture the relationships we have with the people who work with us. And I'll be honest with you, there were so many different places I wanted to take this episode, and there are so many of the lessons that I've learned that I'd like to pass on. Luckily, the lessons I've learned have largely come through conversations I've had on this very podcast. And there's one conversation in particular that I come back to time and time again. It was my first interview with my friend and founder of Productive Flourishing, Charlie Gilkey. Looking back on this conversation, I can see that there were already lessons that had started to come into focus about how I work with people and what it looks like to nurture relationships with team members. But what I can also see is how much this conversation actually helped to solidify those learnings into how my thinking and approach have changed since. Before we get to that conversation, though, I wanted to dig into a topic that I've been thinking a lot about and writing about some, and that's the value of maintenance work. I think any discussion of the relationships we build with our team members needs to acknowledge that some of the most important work that gets done in our businesses is often underappreciated and undervalued. And I want to make sure that we approach this topic with the shared understanding that it's not a conversation about delegating or handing off work you don't want to do. It's a conversation about team building, management, and relationship building. And to do any of those things effectively, we have to get comfortable with the value of maintenance work. We also need to get more comfortable with contributing our fair share to maintenance work. Because yes, entrepreneurs and CEOs have maintenance work to do too. And we have to get comfortable with recognizing the contribution that the people who do maintenance work with us make to the overall health of our businesses. Because there are some really harmful things that happen with hiring and management in small businesses. There are low wages, weird power dynamics, and the mislabeling of workers. There's abuse, unrealistic expectations, and boatloads of scope creep. It happens in restaurants, in corner stores, and in accounting firms. And yes, it happens in coaching businesses, marketing agencies, and online course companies too. The problem is that many of us have put the work we do as business owners on a pedestal and see all of the other work, the maintenance work, as beneath us. Whether it's customer service or project management or formatting content or organizing files, we delegate maintenance work to people whose time we don't see as as valuable as ours. Then we use our quote unquote valuable time to be constantly making new things and breaking old things. We disrupt and innovate and create and avoid letting well enough alone for any period of time. While there's a perception that the hero entrepreneurs of our day are wildly creative and spontaneously genius, the opposite is actually true. They're thorough, meticulous, and careful. They have to be. The calculated risks they take require a solid foundation. They're invested in maintenance work. But because we undervalue maintenance work as a culture, we have to glamorize their stories and make them out to be mad scientists or unpredictable artists. It's easy to feel that you're not really building your business if you're not disrupting something, rebranding, developing a new product, trying a new marketing channel, hiring a new consultant. These are flashy tasks and they feed our egos. Changing things up can seem like the highest use of our valuable time. It's certainly exciting, and it gives you something to impress people with on social media. But changing things up all of the time isn't making your business any stronger. Sure, individual disruptions can absolutely have a positive impact. 
But always chasing after the next thing is not helping and is probably undermining your success. And that brings us back to maintenance work. For many small business owners, the dream is to delegate all of the maintenance work away. They hire a virtual assistant for administrative tasks. They hire an ops manager for project management and systems building. They hire a customer support person to manage and maintain their customer relationships. Delegating away the maintenance work means they have more time to devote to more valuable activities. Now, I am not going to argue that at the surface level, some tasks have a greater economic value than others. The time I spend coaching clients or building a new product does produce real financial benefits quickly, but that ignores the deep, long-term value that maintenance work creates. After all, I wouldn't have the opportunity to even do the financially beneficial tasks without the maintenance work. At the end of the day, we're all contributing to the capacity for work that's financially rewarding. Your maintenance work might look different than your assistant's work or your marketing person's work, but you can't escape your own maintenance work. And we shouldn't want to because that work helps us help our team members. Maintenance work isn't beneath us as business owners. Maintenance work isn't beneath us because maintenance work is the work. Bringing people into your business to help with admin or marketing or project management doesn't free you up to work on the real stuff. Building a team means you're gathering support to work with you on the real stuff, the maintenance work. It's difficult to nurture your relationship with someone whose work you're constantly making harder by disrupting things. It's impossible to have a good working relationship with someone whose work you believe is beneath you. To develop a strong relationship with the people on your team, you actually have to be a part of the team too. Your business isn't about you and the time you have to follow your whims. It's bigger than that. Your business can be a vehicle that benefits everyone involved, meets needs for all parties, and celebrates the value of everyone's contribution. But that's going to require some critical thinking about the way you approach team building in the first place. And that brings me back to my conversation with Charlie Gilkey. Charlie and I talk about the operational components of the mindset shift I just dug into. We talk about the art of management, whether for one or for many. We discuss what prompted him to bring his core team on as employees instead of as independent contractors. And we talk about how he keeps his team and himself from becoming overcommitted and overwhelmed, as well as how he structures his time to enhance his creativity. Now, let's find out what works for Charlie Gilkey. Well, I uh, don't want to hype this conversation too much, but I am very, very confident that this is going to be one for the ages. So let's I, I keep go. asking you to keep the bar low for me. Come I know, on, I know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's go ahead and kick things off. And I want to kind of dive right into the middle of things. I don't want to ask you about how you got started and any of that. I want to know um, more about Team Charlie, Team Productive Flourishing, because it's not just you. Um, you have really worked on building a, um, a, a, a fully featured team, I think. And, and one of the reasons for that is that one of your specialties really is helping leaders build high performance teams. So I'd love to know more about your high performance team. Can you tell us who they are and how they're contributing to your mission? Okay, so there are currently five of us on um, what I consider our core team. And so I've always made a difference between our core team and our support team. And the core team are the people who work with us day in, day out. And these are all employees at this point. So um, and I, we can talk about why they're employees now, because when I talk to entrepreneurs, especially online entrepreneurs, that's sort of a new idea for them, the idea that you could have employees as opposed to independent contractors. But there are five of us. So there's me, there's Angela, who is my um, wife, but she's also um, our business partner. She does a lot of the business management, sort of the CFO stuff. And she also um, is doing some coaching and facilitation right now as well. So we're all sort of multifunctional in that way. But that's the, the piece that she handles is um, more of the um, CFO stuff, community engagement. She's much more involved in the community in many different ways than I am and um, coaching facilitation. So that's Angela. Um, I have Shannon, who is our client services manager and uh, my executive assistant. So she makes sure that all of the trains run on schedule as it comes to my, uh, you know, as it comes to my schedule. But she also is the person that, you know, makes sure that our clients are taken really good care of and they get what they need. And if I say that I was going to do something and the client's like, hey, where did the thing that Charlie said happen? Like she's the one that makes sure that they get served really, really well. 
Um, we have Joe, who is our operations slash marketing manager going forward, given what she's doing. We're just going to change that to marketing manager. And she's the one that makes sure that contents and projects are where they're supposed to be. Um, and so she's the one that's largely responsible for a lot of the a lot of the great efforts we've had this year as far as the things that we've done on Medium and the things that we've done on our website. She's the one that makes that happen. And then we have Jess Summers, who is our digital production specialist. And what she does is she's the one that will take copy and make it beautiful. She does some editing on the podcast. Um, she does a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff when it comes to um, admin and content, and she does super, super well on that. Um, you know, we I, I hire and select for people who are versatile, adaptable, and like to do multiple things because our business is always growing and changing, and there's new projects and new people and things like that, and I've learned that when we have people who are too rigidly focused on just doing one thing, they don't end up being a full member of the team in the same way. And so we we all had this sort of um, multi-potentialite slash creative giant aspect about us is that it's not just that we're the admin person. We're like the admin design audio person because we're <laughs> interested in those. Or it's not just that, you know, we do scheduling, we do client service, and we do different things like that. And, and that's, I think, part of the thing that makes... Um, the team culture um, thrive in a lot of ways. It, it does present its own challenges, but um, none of my teammates ever show up to work bored, right? The boredom does not happen in the business, right? Um, and I think that's a really important piece of that particular conversation. So those are our core teammates. Um, we have a uh, Facebook ad specialist who's fantastic that we work with. Um, we have a um, editor that helps with the editing of some of the posts and make sure that um, I actually sound half decent. Um, <laughs> so, you know, he's a core, or excuse me, he's on the support team. And then there are other people that we might work on. Like if I'm really stuck on finishing an email marketing sequence or things like that, I have another person who just works on email marketing sequences. And then um, we have a copywriting team that if in case I'm like, hey, here are all the geeky, nerdy things that I need to, that, that are part of this product. Can you please make it nice? And they'll do it and make it great. And so that's um, Alex Roderick Foster is the ads guy who I know you know, Tara. Mm -hmm. um, um, Ali Layton is the email marketing um, person. Snap Copy, um, Leanna and James are fantastic over at Snap. And then the other one is um, John Remus and, or excuse me, Jason Remus. And so those are sort of the support teammates that we have supporting different things like that. And so you might just consider those are freelancers. Um, and then we have our employees. You'll hear about why Charlie made the switch from hiring independent contractors to hiring employees for his core team in just a minute. But first, a word from our WhatWorks partners. WhatWorks is brought to you by the WhatWorks Network. The WhatWorks Network brings experienced small business owners like you together to build stronger businesses. We share resources and tools for building healthier systems, lead in-depth conversations about topics you won't find covered anywhere else, and host support events that give you real-time learning for improving your business. Plus, in March, we're hosting our 15th virtual conference. It's all about identifying opportunity from niching down to pivoting to new offers to taking advantage of emerging trends. We're going to gather live on March 25th to get into how we notice opportunities and take action on them. These conferences are one of our members' favorite benefits, and it's where they get to truly become a part of conversations just like the ones we have here on What Works. These conferences are one of our members' favorite benefits, and it's where they get to truly become a part of conversations just like the ones we have here on What Works. In our upcoming conference, you'll hear from Rita Berry about how she went from designing websites part-time to running a marketing agency that handles advertising for seven and eight-figure businesses. You'll hear from Sean Fink and Melissa Dinwiddie about pursuing pivots. You'll hear from Karen Kelbaugh and Alicia Robertson about paying attention to the opportunity and where your skills and people's needs overlap. And you'll hear from Amy Fearman about not fearing change. We're going to open membership at the WhatWorks Network again on February 23rd. To make sure you get your invitation and you can join us for our March virtual conference, go to explorewhatworks.com slash network and get on the wait list. That's explorewhatworks.com slash network. Can't wait to start building a stronger business with you. WhatWorks is brought to you by Mighty Networks. 
People are craving connection to others who share their values, interests, and goals now more than ever. And the places they used to go to pursue those kinds of relationships have only gotten more divisive, more commercialized, and less likely to actually help you find the kinds of people you're looking for. Big social media has made it harder to nurture existing relationships and start new ones. So what's the alternative? The alternative is when people like you take the lead and gather together a bunch of people with shared values, shared interests, and shared goals. Your customers would love to get to know each other better. They'd love to work together to solve shared challenges and pursue new opportunities. And you, well, you can bring them together. Mighty Networks makes it easy. You can create a customized private social network just for your people. Plus, you can offer courses, events, and small groups all on the same platform. The What Works Network runs on Mighty Networks, and so does our Yellow House Media Group, the Standout Podcast Club. We chose Mighty Networks because it gives us a way to bring people together without the distraction of social media. Get started with your own Mighty Network today. Start your free trial by going to MightyNetworks.com. Let's go back and talk about why uh, having employees versus contractors is important to you, because this was a this is actually a transition that's still very fresh in my brain. I decided in January we needed to move all to employees. Uh, and gosh, I cannot even imagine going back to the way it was. At exactly. This point. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Um, and one of the reasons you, you, you know, you brought up that you you really look to hire people who can be multifunctional, who don't mind jumping from one kind of project to another with intent of course. And to me, that's one of the real strengths in having employees. But why are some of the other reasons or what are some of the other reasons that you've chosen to uh, at least build your core team around employees? Um, So part of it is culture building. And, um, you know, I've been consulting with people for a long time. And one of the things that that I find over and over again, and I've found it in my business, is that it is harder to build culture with freelancers and admitted contractors. Um, because they're working with, you know, however many other different clients and things like that. So the way your team works is always like this additional thing for them that they have to figure out. Whereas, you know, everyone in our team, like we just know how we work. That's how we do things here. And I know that can sound for a lot of creative entrepreneurs that that can sound super stifling. But I tell you what, like showing up in the morning and knowing that this is how we do things here takes a lot of that meta work out of the process, right? Like I can ask Jess to do something and she knows um, how we need to go about that in the systems that we use. And I don't have to go down and be like, oh, well, that's cool that you put it in Basecamp, but we use Asana and, <laughs> you know, all of those different types of things. Um, and the other thing that that I realized this early in my own journey, and I see this in, in people all the time, is that um, unfortunately, Tara, I think what people do is hire independent contractors and freelancers, but they'll accept the employee, excuse me, the employer responsibility to keep them working and mm-hmm. to keep them paid, but not necessarily get the employee responsibility for the reciprocality of that, that, you know, that freelancer is going to show up and, you know, be a part of that business in the same way. Because it's not necessarily true that your independent contractor or your freelancer is out there thinking about, like, how am I going to keep this particular job and so on and so forth. So there's a different level of responsibility. I've, I've seen with myself that, like, there were times in my business I was super stressed out about like how I was going to pay an independent contractor to like in the next month, not what I already owed them, but going forward. And I'm like, wait a second, that's an employee employer relationship, right? Um, if it's an independent contractor, theoretically, we should just be like, okay, well, you know, we don't have the work for you this year, or, or I don't have the money for you. And that's just part of the deal. But I was never accepting that part of the deal. So part of it was setting the situation up so that um, that light, that level of emotional responsibility and, and care and things like that went both ways. Um, and then I can start thinking like, okay, um, you know, what's Jess going to be doing this month or what's Joe going to be doing once, when's her promotion schedule, how's her performance. And so now that I mentioned performance, it's another thing. Um, you have to be very careful with independent contractors and freelancers about how you have performance conversations. Um, because legally, Um, And sort of theoretically, it's only supposed to be about the product, not about the process, not about how they're fitting in with your culture and so on and so forth. So you can for real get an asshole that does their job as a freelancer. And your only real sort of critique could be, well, I don't want to work with assholes, but you can't actually amend the asshole behavior. I don't know if I'm actually allowed to say asshole. Am I allowed to say asshole? Absolutely are. Yes. And so and it's not that people are 
like necessarily assholes. They just might be quirky or pokey or whatever, just not a good fit for your team and your culture. And you, you know, on a freelancer slash independent contractor relationship, um, that's a super hard conversation to have because, again, you're paying for, in an independent contractor relationship, you're paying for a specified product and a specified timeline or a specified deliverable and a specified timeline. But as your business grows, what you actually need is people who fit your culture, people who can show up and be flexible and, you know, say, hey, here's what's going on. People who um, won't necessarily have one of their clients launches shift on you and then you get screwed because that client switched and that's, you know, a better client. Like all of those things were just conversations I was tired of having, right? I was, I was tired of having those conversations and, you know, being like, well, I can't do it this week because I've got a client doing this. Or, um, you know, having it would be one of those things where it's like, hey, you know, we need to have a conversation about rates because I need to raise my rates to keep a blah, 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 all those things that you have with independent contractors. Um, and the last thing that I would let's say here is, and some people really push back on this one, Tara, but it's um, the relationship between an independent contractor and the person they hire is always um, in, in some ways in conflict. Because think about it this way. Is the person hiring the independent contractor you want the most output for the least amount of money, okay? Mm-hmm. If you're the independent contractor, you want to do the least amount of work for the most amount of revenue. Um, at a certain point, that can become a real tension point. Now, what happens so often in this sort of new economy world that we live in is we're all just kind of like, you know what, we're just independent contractor, we're just freelancer. That's just a word we're not doing the employees so and so forth. So they act like employees. So that conflict doesn't come up, but there are plenty of times where it does in fact come up, right? Um, To where um, it it becomes um, challenging. And so for me, when it comes to the fact that when you build high performance teams, like culture is so important and just the barriers that we had around independent contractorship and culture building were super hard. Um, The all endedness, like we had more independent contractors when we were doing our weekly huddle and we were doing talks about metrics and, and, and things like that. They just didn't care. Right. Mm-hmm. Cause it's like, that's not my job. I, do, I, I get paid to do what I do. I don't, why do I need to be involved in, in metrics and analytics conversations? Right. Um, and so it's just those types of things where I, all the rest of us were like, yeah, this is part of what's making us successful. This is part of, you know, where we're going. And so um, it just, it just made more sense for us to go that. Now, what I will say is, yeah, yeah, independent, or excuse me, employees, um, they cost more because of the cost structure and everything related to that. Um, but I think the payout is so much better. And I've seen this so much in my own business, but also in my clients' businesses. And there's nothing like, I, I mean, it, it's so hard to say in terror. I would love to hear your perspective. I know I'm, I'm on the mic here, but there's nothing like showing up to work and like the work is everyone's professional priority. They're the one priority that they have. I mean, we we have personal lives, but it's so much different to have that scenario versus showing up to work and working with people who your business is one of many priorities that they have. And they're trying to manage that with, with what else they're trying to do. Yeah, I could not agree more with that. Uh, that's been, to me, I think the biggest shift is never having to worry that I'm interrupting someone, never having to worry that my priority is not the top priority for them. Um, I mean, obviously, I need to respect the time and attention of my employees, um, just as I did contractors as well. But I know every day, just like you said, when I show up for work and they show up for work, we are working toward the same goal. We are working towards the same mission and it is, oh, it is just so good. Like I literally can't imagine going back. Um, so I really appreciate you kind of laying that all out for everybody because I think it's going to be, I think this is going to be a trend that we start seeing over the next couple of years is more and more people realizing that the independent contractor relationship isn't all it's been cracked up to be over the last say decade. Um, and that I think is also going to lead us to uh, kind of shifting our relationships to entrepreneurship in general because there's this kind of perception that entrepreneurship is like the end all be all. And so of course we all want to be entrepreneurs when that's not true. Oh man, we could talk just on that particular thing all day long. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's just what I was thinking. But I think, you know, in, in marketplaces like we exist in, when there's a change on one side, there's a change in the other. And I think, um, this is a broader topic, but I think we're starting to see more and more of a shakeout amongst entrepreneurs and freelancers and things like that, that realize like, wait a second, the four hour work week, is a big promise um, that most people don't get. 
mm-hmm. right? And fundamentally, there are plenty of people who love just to do the thing that they do, and they don't want to run a business. They don't want to be having these pricing conversations. They don't want to be marketing and selling, and they don't want to be on podcasts. They just want to show up and be good at what they do and be recognized and work with people who they like to work with doing something that matters, right? And the challenge is we can roll back to sort of career world here where like maybe, you know, in the, in the 90s, um, you didn't have a lot of options for who you worked for, right? And so you kind of took what you could get. And most of those options were not great. But now there are all sorts of wonderful small companies, micro companies that are hiring employees that will build a culture that's just fantastic. I mean, that's that's one of the things I look for, and we've, we've done it from day zero, is how do we build the business that we would want to work for, right? Yes. How do, how do I build this such that it's something that I don't want to sell because I love doing what I do with the people that I do? Like, why would I sell this, right? This is, I mean, this is what I want to do. I, you give me more money, I have to figure out something else I want to do. I'm kind of in a groove. Thank you very much, <laughs> right? Um, and so that's what we try to work on is how what would we want to see in a company, were we the person being hired? And we build that. Um, and I think there's going to be more and more companies that do that. And so um, I, I think we are on the cusp of that. We're seeing a lot more aqua hires, um, which is where you buy the business, but basically you're buying the talent in the business right. and you absorb that into your business. We see more um, add-on joint partnerships where people are like, hey, you're doing this thing and I'm doing this thing and we're doing it separate. Like, how about you come over here? I mean, I, we're seeing a lot more of that, but I think because the entrepreneurial lifestyle is so lauded and overhyped, people want to jump and go that way. And then five to seven years into it, realize like, actually, I was happier and I made more money when I worked for someone else. Mm-hmm. Right? But I don't want to work for assholes. And I don't want to work for big box companies. So what the hell do I do? Well, again, I think the more we have these conversations about what employment can really mean, I think it opens space for all of us. How do you guys work together on a daily basis? Are you still remote? Are you working in an office together? What does that look like? So um, our team is remote first intentionally, right? And Mm -hmm. so um, because um, I've seen it with other clients, but it's also true for our own business, like there's a lot of sloppiness that can happen when you have a like a location first business, right? Just little things that you don't standardize and little processes that you don't think about. And it really can lead to this place to where there's a lot of meta work and chatter and people just aren't seeing the patterns and trends. And so for us, being remote first um, helps us lean into our strengths, which is really very process focused anyways. Um, and so there's no, there's theoretically no difference between um, Jess and Joe who live in Portland and Shannon, who lives outside of Seattle, right? Where, our, I mean, it's theoretically no difference. Now, there will be times where we might have a local event that it's a whole hell of a lot easier for Jess and Joe to attend. Mm-hmm. Um, but day-to-day, doesn't matter. Day-to-day, it does not matter where people are. Um, and we want it that way because, again, all of us hate commutes, Right. Um, and so, and, and we learned this the hard way. Cause I did, I did the standard thing. I was like, I love working with people cause I'm a team guy. And that's the other thing you gotta understand about me. I'm useless by myself. Um, <laughs> I really I don't am. Know if that's true, Charlie, <laughs> I'm not useless. I'm just not as like, you don't take like a team captain and set him in the middle of a field with no team. Yeah. Right. I love What's he do? Right. <laughs> it has to go out and find people to play with. So, um, I, I'm sort of a pack animal at heart. And I have experimented with all sorts of configurations. And one of the things I learned very early about myself is I don't like working by myself. Um, And every time I tried to, because it was more cost effective and simpler and things like that, I would, you know, end up at the end of a week or two and I'd be just like bored and lonely and not really like doing what I, what I could do best. And so I, I shine with teams. Um, and there are other people, like I'm thinking of um, Josh Kaufman, who I always talk about on this, like Josh, like loves being by himself. He loves being a solo worker and that works for him. So that's part of it is you got to figure out who you are first and then build your team and your lifestyle around that. Because if you try it the other way around, it's a road to misery. So I knew for me that working in a team was the way to go. Now, um, we all, oh, so I was saying we tried in 2011, 2012, where, you know, I had the office spaces downtown, they were nice offices and things like that. But, um, you know, after a while, we all just sort of looked at each other and it's like, you know what, we don't like commuting. 
Like, we don't like coming to work. We don't like that process. So why are we paying $2,500 a month to have a building or to have office space that we don't want to go to um, when we can work from wherever we work as long as we're productive and effective? And so, um, you know, that, that's, that was more of a focus is how do we help people who are not used to remote working become more productive at remote working? Because it's a different way of working. It is a totally different way of working. So we decided to take the onus on us to build the systems and the culture and the processes that, that made it such that people could be pr- productive remote workers and kept the 2500 bucks a month to do, to do other things, right? Um, and so we kept the money and stopped hating life as much. And that's always a win. <laughs> that is always a win. Um, all right. So talk to us about how you've actually established those routines and the culture that allow people to work from home, work remotely more effectively. Can you kind of walk us through the week, uh, or, you know, the, the yeah, kind of a week in the life of the Productive Flourishing team? And, uh, you know, what are what are those things that you're doing on a daily or weekly basis that bring everybody together or that keep them all focused on the same mission? Okay, so... Um... The first thing that I will say here is um, having good job descriptions and roles and responsibilities goes a long way. Um, And so people have different lanes and they have different projects that they own. And it's pretty clear who owns what. Um, And so we try to avoid like, you know, if we have to wear 17 hats because we're a small team, at least we know which hats we're wearing. Right. Mm -hmm. And who's wearing what hat. Right. So so often that's that's one of the things. And so um, like for any given task. Um, 96% of the time, we know exactly who is the, who's going to be the project owner for that task, who's going to be helping that person with that task. And so it's really clearly defined who's doing what. Um, there are some areas where we're continuing to grow. For instance, Joe is um, up-leveling herself as a marketing manager and launch coordinator. She just recently did most of the launch um, by herself, um, meaning she was the launch manager and I was just a guy wondering what the hell was going on. <laughs> um, I knew what was going on, but it's just a very different thing to have your team manage a launch without you. Um, and so um, there were a few areas, though, in that as we continue to do that cross-training where it wasn't clear who was doing what. So, you know, two weeks before the launch, I was like, oh, so um, who is actually making the launch like plan and marketing strategy? Is it me or is it you, Joe? Um, and it's just one of those things where it's like we hadn't actually had that conversation. We knew it needed to be done. She ended up making it, and it was fantastic, right? Um, but, um, yeah, so... That happens. And the other thing that that I would say is we are very clear about the difference between a project and a routine. And a routine is something that you're going to do over and over again. And we have in Asana is the the tool that we use. Um, We have daily routines. We have weekly routines. We have biweekly routines. We have bimonthly routines. We have monthly routines. We have quarterly routines that just recur. And these are things like checking stats and, you know, looking at our comments on Facebook. These are, you know, um, Shannon has a task. I think it's at least every month to review the software as a service tools that we use to make sure we're actually using them. Not that we've ever had that problem or anything. Right. Um, (laughs) And so she like, she just goes down, are we using this? And she'll ask like the people who might use that, like, Hey, are we actually using this? Like, cause this is 29 bucks a month and we can just get rid of it if we're not using it or we can keep it. And so very, very clear about those routines and getting them actually in Asana, because one of the things I look at, actually Joe looks at it more than than I do now, but what I look at is when people aren't doing their routines, it's a sign that they are overcommitted. And so if I start seeing a bunch of things go red, which in Asana means they're behind, I start being able to ask questions like, okay, what's going on? Because if everybody is doing their routines, great. Like everybody's able to do it. And those routines make up you know, a good quarter to sometimes, you know, a third or half of people's job just doing that day in and day out. But again, having it be clear about what the routines are, when they need to be done, and who's doing them, takes away all that meta thinking about like what's happening. Like it's just like friggin' Tuesday. We do this on Tuesday, right? And why do you you like, you know, it, it's super simple. Like, why do we do it on Tuesday? Because we figured out that Tuesday is the best day to do that. Like, stop talking about it. Just do it. Right. Um, Or maybe there is a better day to do it and then we can have that conversation. And so that's really um, the way I like to think about teams is thinking about an individual body. Right. And so in in my space, like there are all the things that I know are going to happen and I know what the plan is and so on and so forth. Right. And so those things don't get that much attention because I'm pretty confident about them. 
But it's all of this sort of other stuff that we don't have our arms wrapped around and that I'm still wondering about how I'm going to fix this and so on and so forth. That is what takes a lot of the metaworking attention that makes it hard to focus on the stuff I need to, I already know what I need to do. I think that same thing happens in teams, right? Where because it's not clear who's doing what and what needs to be done and who and when it's going to be done and how people report on it, there's a lot of like, I'm not sure what's going on that just seeps the hell out of your team's productivity and morale. And the more that you can pin that crap down, just the more that people show up and there's like, it's Wednesday. We know what we do on Wednesday. For instance, Tuesday, um, we publish the pulse. Um, happens every Tuesday. It's Tuesday, we publish the pulse. And I keep saying it that way because it's like, there's not a question about when the pulse goes out. We publish the podcast on Thursday. There's not a question about that. Um, we do, um, you know, we have more of a question now because I'm writing more and Joe's having to figure out how we're going to do an editorial schedule. Mm -hmm. But we know, on you know, usually we'll post Monday or Wednesday, right? Usually Wednesday because um, that Monday we'll have our team huddle. So there's some preparation there. Friday we do our project checkouts. Um, it's It's stupid simple in that way, which I know more people, a lot of people might be like, that's incredibly boring. But I tell you what, like it's great to show up on a Friday and know what the hell you're doing. Um, and so routines drive a lot of what we do. And that, that's a major portion of it. But then it's projects, right? And um, we have gotten a lot better about being disciplined about what projects we're going to commit to, to the point of where if we don't think we can do it, we won't commit to it anymore. Um, and that's a huge shift in this last year because there used to be more chronic, like, hey, we can do these eight things in a quarter, even though this is not what I teach, right? But <laughs> we've gotten to the point to where it's like, um, you know, I look at, I've been looking at this quarter's um, plan and uh, this quarter's rocks and it's like, you know, ship the planners, finish the book proposal. Um, I think we have, um, we're, we're creating some different courses for the planners, but that's it. And I'm like, it shouldn't be more on there, but I know better at this point to know that like, no, like we'll just do these things brick by brick and it works. Um, and that's another thing that I would want to say. I think um, productive flourishing is at a point to where it's can be pretty boring to talk about to other people because it's like same versions of the same shit, right? And it's like, what are you doing? Well, I'm doing the same thing I did last year because it worked, right? Um, I don't need to do a whole bunch of new stuff on top of that. Um, and I think the world has also, also shifted such that with some of the technology out there, like you don't have to create you know, 92 different products instead of promoting, instead of having one or two that work really well that you can promote and get out there and, and really back pretty well. And so, you know, there's some new trends like that in the new economy that are just making it such that um, we're adapting to them. And um, at the end of the day, um, you know, I'm always curious when people ask me to explain what's happening behind the scenes because it feels pretty boring to me. Or not boring, it's not, it's, there's nothing like, super exciting, but I think that's what makes it um, a pretty good culture because in, inside the day, there are the creative challenges that happen with getting a project done and the different choices that you have to make. And so at this point, we're using our, creati our creativity on the work, not using it, using our creativity to figure out what the work should be and how we're going to get it done and so on and so forth. So it's a, it's a shift, but it's a shift that I think we're all loving right now. Yeah, I, I have a not quite fully formed question. So I'll just go ahead and say that first. But um, I'm wondering if you from your perspective with your clients with uh, the businesses that, uh, you know, are the business owners that are following you and talking to you, if you see sort of um, almost a habit of trying to infuse quote unquote excitement into their businesses because they fear the routines. They fear the boring when really, when you get to the place of boring and routines, like it feels really good. Do you see that sort of self-sabotage kind of happening from time to time? Yeah. Well, I, I see it happening for several reasons and that's a great question, Tara. One of it is just the, the freaking entrepreneurial myths and the stories that we have out there. Um, you know, when you look at the stories that end up on Inc. or Fast Company or, you know, why people normally get pulled on podcasts is normally not like, hey, I've spent the last three years building this really smooth business that works well. <laughs> there are no real surprises. You don't see that. You see the, hey, I did this really crazy thing. It worked and you should do it too. Right. Um, and so I think there's so much just, oh, um, I'm just going to call it bullshit. Right. There's just so much bullshit out there that 
we normalize in certain ways. And that becomes what we think business should look like, right? Yes. And I also think that we get caught up in comparisonitis, right? Where it's like, oh, Tara's doing the podcast and she's doing this event, so I should do this too. But, oh, Marie is doing this thing too, and I should be doing that. And, oh, Charlie's doing this, so I should be doing that. And then we just end up with all these like incoherent projects that are basically me too projects from what somebody else is doing because you think you should do that because they're successful, right? Um, but when you look at really successful businesses, what you'll find over and over again, and this is the work that I do, but it's also just, I realized this through, through experience as well. It's like, they're doing less and less as they go on, right? They're not doing more, um, especially in the new economy, like old economies, we can talk different things, but in the new economy, what you'll find is, you know, at core people are like, I write books, I do a podcast and I do events. That's all I do. That's my business. Um, and so, I, th I think that that's at play. And I also think that because people, um, hmm, there's a deeper issue here. I'm trying to see if we can get, get to it. I think because so much of our identity is tied up into hard work and effort and striving, we make life harder unintentionally. Yes. Like we cannot accept that things can be easeful and simple and clear and straightforward. As soon as that we start going there, we think something is wrong. Um, because, you know, when we look at all, again, these, these heroes journeys and struggles, it's all about the struggle, right? Um, it's a really boring story. Like Superman before 1990 was a really boring story, all things considered. Um, he had one flaw, kryptonite, but he was otherwise this perfect guy, right? And at a certain point, like we have, you know, Superman, but then we have Batman who people love and they love Pat Batman because he's flawed and he struggles and he's got all these vices and so on and so forth. And so I think um, we glamorize busyness. I think we glamorize the struggle needlessly. I mean, you're going to be busy no matter what the hell you do, right? That's just a given. You're going to, have, you're going to be on a struggle bus sometimes when you're doing deep creative work because that's part of the process. But you don't have to make that shit harder, right? Um, you can always strive to make it easier because as you grow, as your business goes, you have new challenges. I think the last thing that I'll say about this is that um, as a people and, you know, positive psychology sort of bears this out. Um, it is harder to talk with people and celebrate with a broad amount of people about your successes than it is to commiserate about your misery. Um, and so it's, it's just super hard because if you show up and things are smooth and you're making progress on your book and sales are good and profit is good and passion is good, um, you don't have a whole lot to talk about with a lot of people unless they're also in that same position and you, you build a pack of people that can celebrate those things. Because um, otherwise, if you ever notice you're talking about it, what do you end up talking about? Like the, the stuff that sucks, the bus ride, the weather, um, the you know homeless guy that looked at you funny, whatever it might be, that's what we end up talking about. And so um, what we feed grows. Yeah. So I, I think a lot of that is why we see sort of the struggle. And I think the, I, I said this was last thing. And the other thing <laughs> is that um, I think a lot of creative people don't recognize how supportive structure and defaults are. And they rebel against the very things that they need the most. There's a reason why really great poets end up writing haikus, right? The constraint like fuels their creativity and gives them new insights and, and t teaches and pushes them in a different way. There's a reason why high performing creative people end up inevitably having these really, really um, well thought out structures and containers to do their work. Because at a certain point you want your creativity to be on the thing that you're working on, not to be trying to figure all that out and to being on the meta work of it. Yes. Amen to that. I want to shift gears a little bit. I think it'll be shifting gears. It might come back to the same kind of theme. Um, but you recently wrote an article about communicating your intuitive synthesis to your team that I found absolutely fascinating and really enlightening. Um, and by intuitive synthesis, kind of boiling that down, at least from my perspective, it, it meant really helping your team see what you see as the leader of the team and the leader of the organization. Can you tell me about a time that you successfully helped one of your team members see a problem or see a situation the same way that you did? Yeah. So um, the easiest place to really help people with, help your team with this is, is on patterns and trends, especially if you have data. And so um, one of the things that, that we've done, and this is with Jill primarily, is I switched it so that she was the primary strat stats and trend watcher as opposed to me. 
because what I figured out is she, I was always having to explain to her what I saw in the data. And so she got the conclusion um, because I was the one watching, but now she's the one that keeps up with, you know, some of our KPIs and things like that. And she's the one that also starts reporting on trends like, Hey, this one was really high or she'll see that, you know, this day we had 30% more sales than we did yesterday. And she'll tell me up front, like, this is a thing and I'm going to go figure out why that happened. But it's only because she became the primary person looking and we've had these conversations around, okay, here's how you look for patterns. And having to articulate like, okay, so how do I notice a trend? How do I notice like that outlier piece of data? That's super hard to do. But I'm like, okay, I got to do better than saying that's super hard than do. And so what I said is like, if it's plus or minus 20%, it's probably an outlier. Um, and you should go figure out why, what's creating that. And here are the different places where you might look, right? So you might go to like in the, in the sales thing, you're like, you might look in Google analytics. You might go look in, um, our cart. You might go look at Sumo. You might go look in, in drip. Like here are the places where you can find this data, but it's really, um, switching from, this is what I saw and here's what you should do about it to, um, notice, um, or sorry, to, um, hey, your job is to pay attention to this. Here are some things to be looking for routinely. And here's, once you see some of these trends, what to do. And I, I know that's a really poor formulation, which is one of the reasons on that post I said it's hard to do. Um, let me put it this way. It is incredibly hard to teach people to see strategically. It, that is That is like, the art, and this has gone back, this is not Charlie saying this, this is, you know, 200 years of, two, 300 years of military training, of business training, all goes to trying to help people see things from a strategic perspective. Going through and um, having people look for patterns, so that's one of the first things I figured out to have people do, like patterns. Um, that's really what we're looking at. So, ch like, chess grandmasters who are able to win chess matches really easily, they're actually not making decisions play by play in the way that we think they are. They've actually memorized the boards and patterns and know the next pattern and shape that goes with whatever configuration they're seeing. So it's more memory than it is actually um, that, but it's called intuition. Um, so seeing those patterns and understanding the patterns in your own business to know what works is really important. Um, looking for root causes and teaching your team to think about root causes is a very important thing um, because a lot of times your team will respond to the, you know, thing that's on the top mm -hmm. of the cause chain, um, the, the very top effect when you need to look and say, okay, um, what's causing that and what's causing that. And so sort of the um, five whys is a great, excuse me. Yeah, it is the five whys yeah. um, framework is really great for that. Teaching your team to do that, but also demanding that when they give you data that they've walked through some level of thinking through why that, might happen. Um, that's one thing. I think the other thing, and this is something I, I work on in my own business, but I really work on with other people too, is getting to a point to where um, any of the people who have been on your team long enough to know what the hell's going on can't just bring a problem to you. They have to bring a recommendation, a recommendation, or a solution, or an idea at the same time that they bring the problem, and that helps with my decision fatigue. I'll, I'll flip it to me because I don't have to decide everything, but it also gets them in the habit of coming up with their own decisions and coming up with their own ways of seeing things. And if you can look at their recommendation and say, oh, that's an interesting recommendation. How did you come to that? They start explaining how they came to that. And then you can insert that piece. But hey, did you think about this? Or this is other element. And then they can incorporate that into their future decision making. Right. And that's, um, I don't know how well this is coming across to Eric, but that's I'm really, that's really what you're trying to do. And it takes friggin time. And I think that's where, that's why it's so hard because we expect people, because we have founderitis, right? We expect people to come on and be able to see the way that we see too quickly um, without realizing that we've spent the last six years or 10 years or 25 years cultivating our ability to see. It's just irresponsible and unreasonable to expect someone to come on and be able to do that without that contextual coaching, training, learning, and communication about what's going on. And it takes a while, but it's worth it because then, um, you know, we look at it this way, Tara, like there are three kinds of delegation. There's task, there are projects, and there are responsibilities. 
right? And we want to get to where you can delegate a responsibility to somebody. So let me draw a difference here. So a task, I'll, I'll use Shannon for this one because people understand scheduling. A task might be, hey, reach out to Shannon or reach out to Tara and schedule our next meeting. Okay, that's a task. Um, a project might be, hey, um, you know, I want to have quarterly meetings with Tara. So um, make sure to reach out with her once a quarter um, and do that. So that would be more of a project. Um, or it could be like, hey, we're doing the podcast, or hey, there's this particular thing that I want you to do the scheduling for. A responsibility would be, hey, for all of my clients, or for all of my people, you're responsible for the scheduling. Just figure it out, right? Um, we want to get to the point where we can look at these greater responsibilities and hand those over. But the only way you get there is through a lot of good systems building, communication, and teaching people how to make decisions close enough to the way that you make decisions so that every time they make a decision, it's not this really contentious conversation and they don't feel wrong for that. And what will eventually happen is that your team will start making better decisions than you would be able to make because they actually have more context about what's going on. They actually have thought through it. They actually are juggling all the balls that you used to juggle. And so then you step in and make a complete ass out of yourself because you're like, hey, like do this at one o'clock. And then like Shannon's like, well, we can't do it at one o'clock because X, Y, and Z. We can do it next Thursday at three. Um, and, you know, you start getting told what to do. And so Tara, you know, this. like I'll fire myself from a scheduling action in a heart because number one, it's not my job. Number two, when I try to do it, I screw it up. Right. And so it just makes no sense for me to get involved in scheduling. So all my clients, all my colleagues know just to email Shannon like if there are people who are on my yes and win list, right? And so if they email me and say, hey, let's meet, I'm going to say yes, right? So don't email me, email Shannon, because it's just a win question, right? Um, and so just fire me from the process. And so that's the payout for taking the time to teach people your, your intuitive synthesis. But understand that the hardest work we do is in that um, evaluation um, synthesis and creative space. And it takes a while for people to get there and you do have to train that no matter how well um, trained somebody is before they come in, no matter how much experience you're going to have to teach them to see the way that you see. Um, and I, th what I've learned for myself is that when I've taught people how to see what I see, I've learned how to see better or learned how what I was seeing was not actually accurate. Um, and so the teaching of that has actually improved my ability to see and, and to make better choices. Um, it's work, but worth it. Yeah. Well, that leads me beautifully into my next question, which is probably going to have to be one of the very, very last questions, um, even though we could we could continue talking about these things all day. Um, you know, I think you are doing your team members such an incredible service, teaching them to see the way that you see and giving them responsi those responsibilities and not just tasks and projects. Um, because, you know, it's so many people in corporate jobs, in academia, in all other facets of life are not given that level of responsibility. They're never given ownership. They're never asked to see in that way. They're just asked to be the worker bee, right? Mm -hmm. And so when they come into our businesses, they they generally lack the skill set. But that also means means that so many people hopping into the new economy today coming from the same kinds of places are also needing to hone their skills as people who can see in this way, people who can do this intuitive synthesis. So I'm curious how you, and I, I realize you being a very talented person at this, but, but still someone who I know values improvement, how have you really honed this skill for being able to see patterns, being able to uh, you know, really analyze the five whys and really break things down so that instead of that uh, initial symptom that you're getting hit with, you're really looking at a root cause. What's that process been like for you? So um, I came in trained to do this in some ways because of my prior um, career as an army logistics officer. Um, and logistics, you, to do logistics well, you have to do these things. You have to be able to anticipate problems. You have to be able to figure out what's really going on. And so um, you know, part of it is for me is that taxpayer dollars paid for it. Um, and I appreciate that. Um, the other thing is I went into it with, with the skill. It's, I've been doing things like this since I was eight, right? And has always been that curious sort of why person. And But what I'll say is um, for anything that happens in your business, um, good or bad, you, you should ask two questions. Um, why did that happen now? And two, is there a systemic element that we can address to keep that going or to keep it from happening in the future? 
right? Because there's always a local scenario. There's always this thing happened and it happened for a specific context reason. But there's typically a sort of systemic thing that you can, that you can look for. And so I think the stopping to ask that question um, can be a very important pause point for you there. And, and ask, asking your teammates to always bring to bear that. So like when they're solving a problem, they can say, here's how I'm solving this particular scenario. And here's what I'm doing to prevent it from happening or to leverage it in the future, right? So they're always addressing both the local context and the global context. Um, so that's one thing. But the other thing is, Tara, is I read a lot, right? It's, I mean, straight up, it's just a lot of reading across a lot of different dimensions about how people are getting things done. So by the time you read you know, hundreds of battle strategies. By the time you read um, many, many business case studies, by the time you've worked with, you know, hundreds and thousands of people, you see the same things over and over again um, in a way that they can't see it. And you have to be careful because sometimes you're applying the wrong pattern to the wrong context, um, but you get better at at least asking the questions that identify which pattern, you know, how to anchor which pattern set that you're looking at here, right? And so um, it's a lot of reading, a lot of thinking, and a lot of um, just relentless focus on finding root causes and addressing them um, that 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 make that a part of me. And so I, I, I'm that guy that like, one of the things, nerdy things that fascinates me, Tara, is like, you know, when you have something sitting on a shelf, and it's been sitting there for a long time, and then on some random day that shelf breaks, and the stuff falls off. I'm I'm fascinated by what happened on that particular day. Like what was it, what was the tipping point that led it from from static to movement, right? How did how did that happen or just those types of things. That's just how I'm wired. So, um, you know, I'll walk up to a food cart. It's terrible sometimes to to, to be me in this way because I'll walk up to a food cart or to a restaurant and I'll just be sitting there looking at all the different things they're doing and seeing and I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I wonder why they did this. And I wonder how much the electricity into the food cart cost. And I wonder like <laughs> how they've set their hours and how many how many orders they have to do to make this work and what the net profit on this looks like and what they might change, how they get the marketing. Like that's just how my brain works. And um, I continue to feed that because, um, you know, fortunately for me, I found a career that, that, that harnesses that. If I was, you know, doing something, if I was a sandwich maker, I would need different skills, right? Um, but this is you know, sort of the, the, the path that I carved for myself. Um, so to cap it off though, reading a lot, um, making a point to never take what you see, um, as the ex as like the truth in the way, right? Everything you see is caused by something else. So what's, what are the causes here? So, um, always being very careful to, to look underneath success or mistakes or un to look underneath things to find what they're resting upon. Um, three, practice just different context of applying patterns and things like that. Um, and so I'm a business strategist and so I get paid to practice and I love that. Um, and four, making the practice to um, always know that your job as a leader, and I think for all of us, is to figure out um, what's going on three steps in advance and three steps lower than, than where you currently are. And I think if you keep that perspective, I think you'll just sort of develop different tools around it. At least, I mean, that's what I've done. That's amazing. Charlie, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. And uh, I, I've had some aha moments throughout and I've just been nodding along with you and just so excited for all the listeners who are going to hear your perspective on all of these different issues. So thank you so, so, so much uh, for all of your insights today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Tara. Anytime. As I mentioned at the top, today I can see just how much this conversation with Charlie has influenced me in the four years since it was recorded. While I'd started to take some important steps on my own, Charlie's ideas catalyzed some things for me that have been key to who I've become as a leader, how I work with my team, and how I see my own role in how the work gets done. I hope this conversation has catalyzed some things for you too, or maybe affirmed the things that you're already doing really well. Find out more about Charlie Gilkey and Productive Flourishing at ProductiveFlourishing.com. What Works is produced by Yellow House Media. Our production coordinator is Sean McMullen. This episode was originally produced by Michael Karsh and edited by Daniel Peterson. Marty Seafelt updated the editing. Our production assistants are Kristen Runvik and Lou Blazer. 
get new episodes of What Works delivered to your favorite podcast player automatically by hitting subscribe, absolutely free of charge. And if you're loving What Works, we would love for you to share it with a friend who is building a stronger business too. Next week, we'll wrap up this relationship building series with a look at the relationships we build in our networks and a few stories from What Works Network members too. Till then, keep doing What Works.